Hi, everybody. My name is David Bray. I'm an alcoholic. That, that just... I, that's hard to get used to. Um, I need to, you guys need to get a little enthusiasm. Uh, my sobriety date is January 2nd, 1981. And uh, for that period of time, I am uh, extremely grateful. And just pleased as I can be to uh, to be asked to participate in your conference, and I want to thank the committee for allowing Susan and I to to be here, and and um, I want to thank Carl for picking me up, and I think he had to get a step ladder to get up in that thing, and and a salsa mobile. I guess it's because it shakes, rattles, and rolls. You just throw some stuff in there, and by the time you're done, you got some salsa. I, <laughs> The, um, but the trip up here was, uh, it's a, you know, this is a very, very pretty country, and, and uh, it's, certainly a, it's certainly a pleasure to be here, and I want to thank Carl for, and the two guys uh, for picking me up, and, and we certainly did enjoy our, our trip up here. You know, as I, as I stand up here this morning, I can't help but think about uh, a couple of guys that are, that are in my life or that were in my life that mean so much to me, and, and uh, Jim Shaw and Jack Clater, I, for whatever reason, I'm thinking about them this morning, and... You know, I'm thinking about a, a, a trip in January of 1982 when I moved from Chicago to Norman, Oklahoma, and, and by random I picked a, a meeting out of a book. And I, and I walked into a, a group called the Big Book Group in Norman, and, and uh, three months later, uh, Jim and Vinoy Shaw moved to Norman, and, and that's the group that they were a part of. And over the next couple of years, I got to know Jim and Vinoy, and, and um, you know, I spent many Saturdays in their living room, and, and I got to sit and listen to speakers that would come to our group, and and, um, and sit and listen to people like John Carlton, uh, sit and listen to people like Franklin Williams, sit and listen to Clancy and Johnny Harris, and and um, you know, I just get overwhelmed that you know I could have picked any meeting. And I might have missed, I might have missed what would have occurred in those living rooms had I chosen maybe to go to another place where the enthusiasm that you enjoy, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't taught and wasn't, wasn't encouraged. Uh, you know, today these, the two men that mean so much to me, they, they taught me the things that I'm about to share. They taught me how to be a respectful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. They taught me how to be, uh, to have concern for meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, to have concern about the principles that supposedly we're trying to uh, live by. And so I have a great deal of respect for the men that have gone before me. Uh, I'm, I was sad that I missed Hank, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing Bob, and, and, and I always enjoy being around old-timers. I sit in my meeting today, and, and you know, I'm the oldest member of Alcoholics Anonymous in my group, and it scares me to death. But I also realized that in 1982, when Jim came to Norman, he had 16 years of sobriety, and he was the oldest member of that group, and he cared more about the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous than how I felt. He taught me about upholding the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I would do stupid things, it didn't hurt his feelings to hurt mine. <laughs> and he cared more about Alcoholics Anonymous and teaching those principles than, uh, than, than uh, how I felt. And I have a great deal of admiration uh, and respect for those people. And I know that this conference is, is, is built on those same traditions, so it's certainly an honor for me to be here. Um, you know, I, uh, I grew up in a family. I've got two older brothers, and um, 
My father was a uh, very, we grew up in a very sports-oriented family. My father was a, a professional ball player. He, he was in the, uh, the Chicago Cubs minor league uh, baseball system and, and uh, washed out, but uh, we, just our whole family was revolved around competition and competitiveness and sports. I really had felt sorry for my mom. I mean, uh, she was left. Uh, it was just a very competitive family, and and uh, my oldest brother, you know, had some talent in golf and and uh, and was a pretty good student. The middle brother was uh, three lettermen in baseball, football, and, and basketball in high school. And then there was me. Um, I was kind of fat and chubby, didn't run fast, didn't jump high. And uh, but my father didn't care; just taught the fundamentals, and that was what he taught us—the fundamentals. He really—we never lived by the old adage: "It's not how you, it's not whether you win or lose; it's how you play the game." We didn't live by that. Win, <laughs> by God, and uh, that's kind of how we grew up. And so I've got a competitive nature today that is, at times, ugly. Um, I say things and do things under the heat of competition that should not be done by somebody that's trying to live by spiritual principles. <laughs> but there's just something about competition that just, you know, a couple of days ago, in fact, I guess it was two days ago, I, I signed up for a golf tournament that, uh, you know, I've got really kind of bad feet, got arthritis and bad ankles, and I signed up for a tournament where you're supposed to walk 36 holes and carry your clubs. And uh, it's the first time that I, I just had to walk off the course. I couldn't make it. And... Um, I told my wife, I said, well, I guess, you know, just that's the way it is. But as we were growing up, you know, I went out for football. And I went out uh, my freshman year in high school. I went out for the football team. And, and it was about the uh, oh, last week of football practice. And, and uh, the coach looked at me and he goes, you know, Bray, for a guy like you that comes to football practice every single day, you're absolutely the worst football player I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he was right. I mean, football requires a little bit of courage. And, and I had a bad back, big yellow streak right down the <laughs> didn't like getting hit didn't like hitting people and that so football is really not a game that you should be playing with that kind of mentality um, but I today I recognize without a shadow of a doubt with all those fundamentals you know I am an absolutely magnificent awesome athlete in a body that just didn't want to cooperate <laughs> in my head I know what to do I know what I want to do but the results rarely, rarely live up to what I'm thinking about. Um, so at the age of, uh, after that coach told me how good of a football player I was, I picked up golf. And I uh, became fairly good at it fairly quickly. Uh, golf's a great game. You can hit it. And when you hit it, you don't have to run it. Run after it. You can walk after it. Uh, you can walk slowly if you choose. Today, I, I drive after it. <laughs> and uh, became fairly good at the game fairly quickly, and, and it was something that I really enjoyed and, and still do. Um, about the same time, I uh, started drinking. You know, I grew up always looking at the fact that I didn't feel like I could meet the expectations that my father, that I perceived... And that's really something that's today I'm learning more and more about. It was my perceptions of what I thought my father's, per, you know, what he expected of me. And I felt like there's no way I could live up to those expectations. I saw what my oldest brother did. I saw what my the second brother did. And I knew what I was doing. For whatever reason, there was always that fear in there that I just, I just never made it. Um, took that first drink. 
That first night I went out and, and I, my first drunk, I, I, you know, I drank a bunch of slow gin with some buddies and drank some bourbon and some scotch and whatever else there was in there. And I did that. I did the thing that night that I did most nights. I puked. I was a puker. And I found very interesting places to puke. And, um, but I also remember the feeling that came over me that first night. That when that when that alcohol went down and it hit and it went into all the nooks and crannies and it seemed like all the fear went away, I automatically lost about 40 pounds. You know, there was some spring in my legs. Felt like I could jam. You know, for whatever reason, that perception just completely changed. And I li- I went after that feeling from that time to the day that I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, today I realize that I am not an alcoholic because when I drink I get drunk. I'm not an alcoholic because when I drink, I get DUIs, or when I drink, I get in trouble. When I drink, something changes. And then at the end of my, you know, at that one point, as our book describes, our book describes alcoholism like this. We alcoholics are men and women. Found out there's only two kinds of alcoholics, men and women. (laughs) Who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And I had lost the ability to control my drinking. When I drank, I could not tell you the things that would happen. When I drank alcohol, I could not, I could not finish the things that I knew I needed to get done that day. When I drank alcohol, I did things that I really didn't choose to, I really didn't set out to do. And if that doesn't describe unmanageability, I don't know what does. But that's what happened to me when I drank alcohol. When I drank alcohol, I would black out. I would, you know, obviously lose time. Uh, I graduated from high school and I, I went to a junior college. Uh, I was on the golf team at the junior college. And at this time, there was still enough control that, uh, you know, I, I was still practicing every day and, and got down to about a one handicap, played golf with some guys that are on the tour today. And, and um, you know, but my alcoholism, the way that I wanted to drink, it just didn't coincide with, with a lot of practice. You know, it's awful hard to. I was in tournaments and, and I was so hungover that there were times where I'd have to hit the ball on purpose into the woods so I'd go in and puke and hit the ball back out and continue on. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's awful hard to be competitive when you're doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> it doesn't look good out in the fairway, so you hit it in the woods and you go about your business. Um, but I ended up giving up something that I really didn't want to give up because it took too much time. I graduated from that junior college, I don't know, and I, and I enrolled in Northern Illinois University. I'm from the Chicago area, and, and uh, Northern Illinois is in a small town called DeKalb. It's about, uh, oh, 45 miles north of Chicago, and, and uh, went up there with the idea that I would be... I love in Bill's story when he says, I imagine myself at the head of vast empires. I love that. I imagine myself like that as well. And um, I thought I'd go up there and... and uh, get into their business school and become business-like. <laughs> and um, they, had, they had a little bit of uh, requirements to get into their business school, which I didn't meet. I heard one guy from a Beyond a Podium said, I continually failed to live up to the low expectations I set for myself. <laughs> you know, and that really, that just, that perfect, it's perfect for me. Um, so I didn't, I didn't qualify for their business school, and, and uh, they told me what I qualified for, which wasn't much. And uh, they told me I could go into careers like plumbing, uh, w- welding, 
And if you're a plumber or a welder, those are great, those are great progressions. It's just one what I was looking for. And um, so I ended up enrolling in a couple of, now I'm a, I've already graduated from a junior college, so I'm going in there as a junior, but I enrolled in a couple of freshman English classes, a couple art classes. It's about the only thing I could get into, and, and um, I flunked one art class. I don't know how you flunk art. <laughs> when you don't show up, I guess that's how you flunk art, but... My wife, for a period of time, was working in the art department at uh, the University of Tulsa, and I seen some of the stuff that hangs up on their walls. And these people look like they flunked art. <laughs> but that's a whole other story, and, and I'm not going to get into it. Um, but my drinking is now taking on more serious pro- in proportions, and, and uh, you know, on, on, on a college campus, one of the great holidays is Halloween. And because uh, you can just do just about anything you want. Now, I'll cause we do that anyway, but Halloween is kind of permission to go out there and, and, and do that kind of stuff. And, and I'm hanging around a bunch of thugs. And, and during, the, during the 1980, there was a movie that came out. It was called uh, The Warriors, uh, a movie about gangs. And um, one of the gangs in this movie was a gang called the Baseball Furies. And so this group of thugs and I decided we'd uh, go to this party as a members of the baseball fury so we dressed up like they dressed up you had to paint your face red and white and get in baseball uniforms and carry baseball bats and and uh, so that's what we did i didn't have a baseball bat so i went into my closet and uh, took the pole out of my closet and uh had about a four foot closet pole and uh dressed up painted my face red and white Went to the party and do what I always do. I drank too much. Lost control of my drinking. And I blacked out. And the story that was told to me was this. That the guys that I was hanging out with, for, I left that party and I don't know where I was, but about 3 o'clock in the morning, some uh, people that I was living with in the same apartment complex saw me walking in an opposite direction that I should have been walking. So they grabbed me and, and brought me back to the apartment. And I walked into some of the neighbor's apartment. And I had about that much of the baseball or my closet pole left and uh, what they told me is I walked in and, and um, said oh I was hurting people I was hurting people and I don't remember I don't remember what happened that night I don't remember if in fact we got in a fight or got in a rumble or got in whatever the heck you get into when you're dressed like we were dressed and they told me that story the following morning and it, it, it scared me and uh started looking in the college newspaper. Most college newspapers have a little section in there, the blurb, the police beat, whatever you want to call it. And so I started looking for any, any sign of somebody recognizing the fact that somebody was dressed up like an idiot carrying a closet pole, <laughs> whooping on people. And um, I didn't find it, so I just, I just I forgot about it. Everybody does it. Not a big, not a problem. Um, Late November, one that one night or one morning, I wake up and or come to, and I'm on my come to on my living room floor, and uh, had an intuitive thought, had an art test. Now the apartment that the people that I'm living with, they drink like I drink, and so we've got the we've got a nice alcoholic apartment. Every dish and cup and glass is on the counter, has anywhere from two to six week old food on it um, the carpet has kind of got that alcoholic crunch to it (laughs) 
because, uh, you know, beer, bong water. <laughs> any, any combination of bodily fluid is, is, is on that carpet. And um, I come to and my face, I kind of peel it off that carpet. And I look out our, our living room window, which has no, it has no curtains on it. it has a, we drape a sheet over it, and the sun's shining. And, and again, I have this intuitive thought that I, I've got a test. So I put on my uniform of the day. I have a T-shirt that I've cut the sleeves off and proudly proclaims on the front, free me. And I uh, put on my pair of shorts and my thongs, and I, uh, I grab my number two pencil because i got a test. And I, walk, and I walk to class. And um, I get to class, and it's in an auditorium similar to this. And, and I look up to find a place to sit on to take this test. And as soon as I look up to find that seat, I immediately recognize that there's something amazingly different about you compared to me. You are all in heavy winter clothing. You have you have the the heavy the heavy coats and the scarves and mittens and some of you've got those those pullover ski masks where only the eyes are showing because it's late November in Northern Illinois and it's cold. But you see, when I came to that morning and I look out my window and the sun is shining. My keen alcoholic mind is going, sun, warm, free me. Grab your number two pass. Now, that's, that's pretty much how I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, with that keen analytical mind. Semester ends and I go home for the Christmas vacation and, and um, you know, my folks have had pretty much enough. I have time after time after time have done the things that, that we do and, and I've, I've destroyed the relationship with my parents and, and it's after Christmas now and, and um, my folks go to one of the business parties I guess my dad has and perfect opportunity. I invite a couple of the buddies over, three or four guys over and, and it's one of those times where you invite three or four people over and about 98 show up. And one more time, when I start drinking, I do the things that I do, and I black out, and I pass out. And now my, my parents' home is, is left prey to this band of carnivorous alcoholics. And, uh, and they do what they do. And I'm left trying to, you know, I come to, and I, I'm trying to clean this house up. You've got to realize, my mom's the kind of person that if there's a wrinkle in a bedspread, somebody's been in the house. <laughs> Now, now half the house is missing, and I'm trying to straighten up. And um, one of the things that one of the things later that they found was, uh, I guess, one of the group of keen people went up into my parents' bedroom, and in their in their closet they had their lockbox with all the personal papers and and all the deeds and all the stuff, and and uh, they wanted to get into that lockbox, and so they beat it to within an inch of its life. 
And I guess they couldn't get in, so they stored it from, from upstairs in their closet. They stored it downstairs behind the furnace. My mom found that several days later. And the amazing thing was is the lockbox wasn't locked. <laughs> had one of those little lunchbox latches, you know, and, and um, <laughs> the unfortunate thing is when our book describes that we sought out lower companionship, I think these are the guys that were seeking lower companionship. And that's kind of the way that it really was. And, and um, you know, the next day my father looked at me and, and uh, he, had, he was done. But the last thing that he said to me before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous was, he goes, Dave, with a son like you, I don't need any enemies. My mom said, you know, Dave, we'd appreciate it if you don't tell anybody that you're our son. Because I have done everything that I could possibly do to ruin that relationship and, and, it's, and it's ruined. And um, for whatever reason... You know, they, they love me, and, and uh, so they offered, I guess they are through either a radio announcement or whatever, they offered to put me to treatment. And the one thing that has come to my mind is this, is that something happened this day, January 2nd, 1981, that had never happened to me before because my dad's asking me if I want help. And at every time up to this point, I had said no. I don't need any help. But for whatever reason, on this day, something came out of my mouth that had never come out of my mouth before. And what came out of my mouth was, is if I'm going to stop, I need help. And I haven't had a drink since. Now, it's not just simply because I said I need help that that's occurred. I've heard several times behind a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous, somebody describe a moment of clarity. And I believe I had a moment of clarity on this day. And that moment of clarity wasn't that I'm alcoholic. I knew I was alcoholic two years before I came to you. I knew I had trouble drinking two years before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, that moment of clarity was is that I need your help. And every day, from that day to this day, I believe that for me to stay sober, I have to remind myself that I need your help. And that there are many days that I need your help more today than I have ever needed your help. Because when I'm with you, I have an opportunity to be sober and to act sober. And to participate in this thing called sobriety. But when I'm trying to do it my way, when I'm trying to do it on my own, inevitably, sooner or later, I will convince myself that I don't belong here. You know, somebody in the meeting last night was talking about that they felt that they were lucky because they had a couple of their buddies that were out there. I don't believe that. I believe that our book says that those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Now, for me, completely has changed over a long period of time. Completely, when I first got here, was get to the meeting. Show up. Was completely. Then it became show up on time. And as time has rolled on, completely means more and more and more. But I know that that day, when I said I needed help, something changed. They whooshed me off to treatment. You know, uh, my, I went to a treatment center, but my, my sobriety and my, my recovery has nothing to do with that treatment center. My recovery didn't occur until I began actively participating in the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and actively participating in recovery in a home group. After that treatment center, they whooshed me off to a halfway house, stayed in a halfway house for about four or five months. Halfway house had nothing to do with my recovery. I just was put in an environment with a bunch of other goofs that were trying to get sober. One thing happened in this early part of my recovery is, is uh, I became friends with a, with a guy, and 
And um, he and I would always sit near the back of the room and inventory point, and we'd take all your inventory, <laughs> trying to figure out why we didn't belong and what you guys were doing wrong. And we, we were coming up with our own version of the book. had about three pages. <laughs> and about three months, he got drunk. Scared me a little bit. In fact, I, I went as far as in my perception that now AA doesn't work. That this thing has been really nothing but a scam. Guys, been, guys are all a bunch of brainwashed, robotic fools. So I went to try to save my buddy, and I walk into his apartment, and he's in his reclining chair, and he's got his feet up, about 12 crushed beer cans near his chair, and he's got that glazed look on his eyes, and, and asked me if I wanted a beer. And for there, there was a moment. I ended up saying, no, I said, if you ever want to get sober again, call me, and I went to a meeting. But I went to that meeting to resign. I didn't know you just don't stop going. I went. (laughs) I was going to go quit you. And uh, I went into a a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in a church in Chicago. And and, um, I was preparing my speech. It was a discussion meeting. and, And it was obvious, I think, the guy that was leading the meeting really could see that I was probably not the guy that he wanted to call on. But he ran out of time. And I had to call on me. And uh, for about three minutes, I, I really was ugly in, in your meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I called you every name under the sun. I told you my, fun, my friend was drunk. I told you all lied to me, a bunch of idiots. Nothing but a scam. And by the way, I want all my money back. Finally, the guy that was leading the meeting said something very important. He said, Dave, shut the hell up. We're tired of listening to your crap. He said, I want to tell you a couple things, Dave, and I I hope you listen. He said, number one, the the reason that your friend's drunk tonight isn't because Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work. He said, the reason that that your friend's drunk tonight is he chose not to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, but there's something else you need to know, Dave. And I said, if if you walk out and you don't hear anything else, I hope you listen to this. He said, Dave, right now, in this meeting... There's two types of people sitting in this meeting. He said there's good examples of Alcoholics Anonymous sitting in this meeting. He said there's some bad examples of Alcoholics Anonymous sitting in this meeting. Now pick the one that you want to be and shut up. Well, I had my first presentment, Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) But you know what? I didn't know the difference. And it's taken people like Jim and Jack and Johnny and the people that I look up to in Alcoholics Anonymous to teach me what is a good example of Alcoholics Anonymous and what isn't a good example. And today I've begun to understand that there are good examples of AA. People that stay quiet during the other people when they're sharing. People that stay in their seats. People that don't get up and go get coffee during a meeting. People that get there on time. People that take commitments in the home group. These are good examples of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I didn't realize that this was a place that I should actually show respect to. I thought that I had a right to come in here and do anything I wanted because Alcoholics Anonymous, anything goes. You can do anything in AA, just don't drink. What a bunch of garbage that is. This is a place for people that want to get sober. This is a place that people want to get well. You know, every night in your home group, you probably read what we read at our home group, a little thing called How It Works. And I believe that there's a message in there that we actually read to the new man or the new woman. 
There's a message in there that we're trying to provide right for that guy or that gal that's suffering and doesn't know whether or not they belong here or not. And I believe when we read, if you've decided you want what we have, and you're willing to go to any lengths to get it. Now that's kind of a scary thought, that we're asking the newcomer, do they want what we have? Because I've, I've sat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous where the meeting was nothing but laced with profanity. That the meeting is laced with, you know, ugliness. That there's no solution going on. It's everybody talking about their problems. I've been in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous where you can't tell whether you're at an AA meeting or if you're at a bordello. And we're asking the newcomer, do you want what we have? Hell, I can go down to the nearest pub and get what you guys got, if that's what your meeting's like. Why would I want that? I already got it. I'll never forget one time. I'm 14 years sober, and I called Shaw, and I was whining about something. He finally told me, Dave, shut up. He said, Dave, I assume that you've asked me to be your sponsor because you want what I have. I can promise you I don't want what you got. (laughs) Man was ruthless. But I begin understanding that there is a difference between being a good example of Alcoholics Anonymous and a bad example. And, and I attempt on a daily basis to be a good example. Now, there's days where I fail utterly. But every day I can go out and do better. Do the right thing. So I get out of this halfway house and, and it's time to go on. And, and uh, I attempt to go finish my education. And so my oldest brother's living in Norman, Oklahoma. And he says, why don't you come down here? He said, in, you know, I found out in-state tuition in Oklahoma was cheaper than in-state tuition in, in Illinois, so I went to Oklahoma. That's the only reason. So I come to Oklahoma, and I land in Norman, Oklahoma, and like I said, I picked a meeting random out of the book, and I fell into a group called the Big Book Group. And they had things that I hadn't seen in Chicago, at least not the places I was going to. They had structure, and they, had, they talked about discipline, and they had thing called sponsorship, and they worked the steps. And so I'm looking around. They, everybody's talking, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, get a sponsor. I'm going, God, i got to get a sponsor. I'm also at the point where right now I think I've gone as far as I could just on the fellowship. And I need to work some steps because I haven't done them yet. And so I'm looking around and I see this guy that seems, he talks, he looks like a good example of Alcoholics Anonymous and he also stands about 6'3". He's got shoulders out to here. And I realize that if I try to lie to him, he'd probably pummel me. So I asked him to be my sponsor. And he started relating me through the steps and, and there was a time where he asked me to do something that I just didn't quite understand. I said, I ain't doing it. That was not the right thing to say to him. He goes, well, you want to step outside? Now, I've got this competitive thing going. So I put on my cool, you bet. And we wrestle around my front yard for about the next 20 minutes. He pretty much just beats the crap out of me. And when we're done, he's, he's got kind of his foot on my chest, and he's going, what do you want to do? I, I said, oh, I give up. He goes, that's step one. <laughs> and you know what? For the very first time in my life, I understood step one at, at a very deep level. Because <laughs> when I really look back at it, I see that alcohol did the same thing to me. Alcohol hit its foot on my throat. And I couldn't win. And I couldn't beat it. I had tried. I, I gave alcohol the best fight I could and I lost. And so that little display, I understood surrender. 
We went on, we went on and we started working the steps and I took my inventory and I'll never forget that first time I took an inventory and I told this man everything about me. And I told him all those deep, dark secrets that I had never told another human being. And I walked out of there and something had occurred to me in this meeting about, you know, it occurred in this program. I think I had another one of these, you know, places where I understood Alcoholics Anonymous can work for me. And for a period of time, I didn't know if it could or couldn't work. And if you're sitting out there and you're at that place where you don't know if this thing can work for you or is going to do the things that you're being told it will do. I heard one guy say that, you know, now that you've ruined your reputation for the remainder of your life by associating with us. (laughs) Stay. (laughs) Because the people in these rooms do understand. And if I end up staying here and I do work the steps, see, when it says in step 12 that I have had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps, that's a promise. It'll happen. You just have to stand here and you have to go through the things that you've got to go through to get to the other end of the, to go to the other side. If I work the steps, it'll happen. If I choose to not work the steps or choose to do things my way or choose to be defiant, which is my nature, I'll probably stay where I'm at. And generally for me, an alcoholic, I don't, I don't stay where I'm at. I either go backwards or forwards. And for me to go backwards, go back out. And I certainly didn't want to go there. One thing happened. This guy got drunk. He worked me through the steps and got drunk. Ended up getting another guy for a sponsor. Got like, I got a guy by the name of Albert Myers, who's now passed on. And I got Albert because I saw Albert and Sally and the way that they conducted themselves. And I really, really watched what they did. And, and I wanted what they had. And Albert taught me a lot of things about being in a relationship and being uh, in a, in a re- sober, recovering relationship. And I owe, a lot of, I owe him a lot of the success that Susan and I have in our marriage to the things that Albert taught me. But then there came a time where I wanted to get more active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I remembered Jim from Norman. And Jim had moved to Dallas. And I called and I said, Jim, I need a sponsor. And Jim and I had become friends. And I said, Jim, I don't want to ruin our friendship. And the, so he said, OK, wait a second. I'll, let me think about it. Oh, hell. I thought about it. I'm your sponsor. I want a Ford step in two weeks. <laughs> Oh, man, I thought I made a mistake. <laughs> but I ended up going through the steps with Jim, and, and uh, Jim was my sponsor for 10 years up until the day that he died. And, and Susan and I were in the room that day when Jim passed. And, and uh, you know, I owe my life to Jim. I owe my life to the fact that he taught me more about Alcoholics Anonymous and being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous and caring about the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous and caring about and being concerned with the message that's being given to the newcomer. I have a responsibility that I didn't know about. That as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a responsibility to stand at the door and greet the new man or the new woman and say, if you want to get well, we can help. And for a long period of time, I thought this was my place to come and be. And maybe for a very short period of time, and I mean short, that's, that's true. But then I have to turn around and I have to greet that new guy and say, come in here, please. We've got a place. If you want to get well, we can help. Susan told you the story of A.A. Rowe, and, and uh, she came home from a women's conference, and, and we, had, we had been friends for a long time. And, um, and uh, so we were, she invited me over to dinner, and, and I walked into the kitchen, and she was cooking steaks, or, and uh, she turned around, and I was right there, and, and I kissed her. And for the first time, something happened. She kissed back. Now, I saw like sun warm mind going. And um, so in my mind, I did the absolutely next logical thing. I moved in. She let me. And um, 
And, and then she described that night and she was she we were laying in bed one night and she asked me that question. What are you, what are you thinking? Oh, don't ask that question. And so I told her, I said, I don't think I can marry you. And out the door I went. This is about four and a half years of sobriety. And I'm, I'm an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm sponsoring guys. I'm taking meetings into prisons and uh, doing whatever I can around our group. And, and I'm an active member of AA. And uh, when we broke up, it was kind of it was kind of tense. And as she described, one of the great things going on at that point was every Saturday night, everybody seemingly would go over to Jim and Benoist for fellowship after the meeting. And it was the place to be. We had more fun in those in their living room than I can ever describe to you. The fellowship in their living room was was magical. It hooked more newcomers in than anything else we could have done. And for at this time, when Susan and I broke up, because Benoist was Susan's sponsor, and at this point, Jim was yet my sponsor, I didn't feel like I was welcome. So the Saturday night, everybody's gathering and they're talking about going over to Jim and Benoit's. And I, in my mind, am saying to myself, I'm not welcome. But I had to be sure. So I drove by. And I rolled the window down. And I listened. And I heard the laughter. I did a drive-by listen. (laughs) And at this very moment... I have never been back to this place, but it was the absolute scariest time I've ever gone through. AA went away. I was completely engulfed in total fear and total resentment because I knew I wasn't welcome. And I, I'm an active member. I'm sponsoring people, and nothing's there. There is no AA there. The only thing that's there is the hell with you people. And the very next thought was, screw it. Let's go get drunk. And I'm about to go get drunk. And God came into the car because I've never had a drink in Norman, Oklahoma. I don't know where to go. I had to put the car in park to think, where do I go to drink? And I couldn't I couldn't come up with. I was like brain lock. And at that very moment, I believe God sent me a little message. He said, go see if Chip's home. If Chip wouldn't have been home that night, you'd have a different speaker tonight. I drove over to where Chip lived. I knocked on his apartment door and he was home. And I walk in there and I start bawling and blowing snot and <laughs> taking your inventory. And But one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic, I didn't have to get drunk that night. Next Saturday night, Susan comes over in the meeting and she walks over to me when she got this smug Al-Anon smirk on her face. She just she just heard some joke, probably Vinoy told her. She walked over and she used this one word. She goes, what's the difference between a Yankee and a bucket of shit? The bucket. <laughs> so I did the only thing I could think to do. I married her. And as she told you, we got married on August 3rd of 1985, and, and uh, this August 3rd we'll be married for 13 years. And I don't know how to be married. I'm a self-centered, self-deluded, how do you get, I don't know how to be married. But because of the principles and because of this inventory thing we do and because of amends and because of the principles that we live by, 
we've been able to put together a marriage. And as she told you, every year at the Canyon Conference, we go into that chapel and we get down on our knees and we do a third step prayer on our marriage. And every year we get in the aisle of that little chapel on the grounds of the Canyon Conference, which is our favorite place, and we take our rings off and we remarry each other. Because we really, truly believe that the reason that we're together is God put us together. And we really, truly believe that the reason that our marriage works is we place our marriage in God's hands. And that we ask God to use our marriage as he will. And if that's to be active in Alcoholics Anonymous and active in Al-Anon, then that's what we do. And together we realize that when AA people call, if we've got something going, I put that aside and I go do that Alcoholics Anonymous thing. And if somebody calls for Al-Anon and, and we're doing something, she puts that aside and she goes to do that Al-Anon thing. Because that's the reason that we're married. When I got to so, remember I, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't have a thing. I didn't have I had nothing. I had zero. I had a free me T-shirt. <laughs> and today we have a house full of stuff, and we're trying to buy a bigger house full of stuff. And all that stuff is yours because you gave it to us. Our home is your home. You're welcome there at any day. That doesn't mean you can come over and get the stuff. But you're welcome. And um, I don't know anybody that has a better marriage than I do. But uh, I don't know. Several years ago, I got to I got to watch one of the worst things I've ever watched, and that was watching my mom die of alcoholism. And there were times when I'd call Jim, and just I couldn't take it because the only time that we'd go and we'd we'd see my folks and. And uh, she'd always be drunk, and she was a bad drunk, and, and she's always in blackouts. And, and near the end, she was, you know, you could tell her liver was distorted, and she wasn't, her legs were bird, bird legs, and it was just, it was just hard to watch. And I'd always call Jim and say, Jim, man, I just can't take it. And he'd keep telling me about his dad getting sober when he was 78. And he said, partner, we just don't know what God's got in store. We just need to keep praying. And then through a series of events, my dad lost his job. Because my dad would never recognize the problem, the fact that my mom had a problem. He ended up losing his job, so he was home. And one night, about three in the morning, he gets up, and he's not. My mom's not in the bed, and he walks into the kitchen. My mom's down in a bottle of vodka, and he couldn't ignore it anymore. And he called me. He said, "Dave, what do we do?" And so the following day, he called back, and he said, "We just stuck your mom in a treatment center." And that was in January 1993. And in January of 1994, I got to go to Florida. I got to stand in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and hand my mom a one-year medallion. And this is January of 98. I got to stand in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got to hand my mom a five-year medallion. And people ask me, Dave, why are you so serious about Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm serious because I see the impact that Alcoholics Anonymous has on people's lives. I got to be a part of, obviously, Alcoholics Anonymous impacting my life. I get to watch Alcoholics Anonymous impact the lives of the people that I sponsor. But it certainly doesn't, it pales in comparison to watching my mother get sober. If you come into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm sitting in, I'm going to protect the integrity of AA. I'm going to protect the, the fact that somebody might be coming in that needs help. And we need to be talking about the solution. We need to be talking about that Alcoholics Anonymous works. We need to be talking that there's some hope here. We don't need to be talking trash. We don't need to be 
having barroom conversations and meetings of AA. That father that 17 years ago told me that with a son like me, he didn't need any enemies. My wife got very sneaky. On my 15-year birthday, she flew my parents in. And uh, my parents got to watch Alcoholics Anonymous at its best. They got to watch Alcoholics Anonymous, and the people of Alcoholics Anonymous love Susan and I. And on Sunday afternoon, I, talked, I took my parents back to the airport. My father pulled me aside. And he said, you know, Dave, there was a time when I thought you had a promising golf career. But after this weekend, it's obvious that you've been called to a higher order. And the relationship between my father and I has been repaired. In the last couple of years, the relationship that I have with my father is the best it's ever been. I took from him everything I could take. I ripped his soul out because of my alcoholism. Somebody described to me that the worst type of thief is the, the, the thief that steals the right of another human being's right to be happy. That's what I took from my parents. I took their right to be happy because of my drinking. And today, because of the principles that are contained within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the working of these steps, those relationships have been repaired. I call my mom. We talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. I call my father. We spent uh, uh, about three days down in my folks' house a couple months back, and, and Susan and I just sat and we talked about Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. We talked about our, our organization's history and how much we care about it and what we're involved with and the things that mean something to us. I don't ever talk to my father about my job or how much money I'm making. It doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, it helps when we can pay the bills, and it's important that I go to work and that I'm responsible. I do the best I can when I'm at work. But that job pales in the freedom that this program has given me. Last thing that Shaw said to me before he died was, you're responsible. <laughs> he also said that if, if I didn't do the things that he was asking me to do, he'd come back and haunt me. <laughs> and he'd probably be able to find a way. And when Jim died, I called Johnny out in California and I said, Johnny, I need a sponsor. And today, Johnny is my sponsor, and Johnny just turned 37 years sober, and he cares about the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he cares about what goes on in his meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's teaching, he's teaching me those things that he understands. I stand here a product of strong sponsorship, and I stand here the product of the fact that people cared more about Alcoholics Anonymous and its message than how I felt. I thank God for this program. I thank, pro I thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's because of this program that today I have a relationship with God. And for that, I'll always be grateful. Thank you.